Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer. Today, we're going to have an incredible episode, just like always. And today, you know, last week did not hold a lot of new news that we could go over with topics. Because basically, the if we looked at last week's news, I would talk about the same topics we talked about um, this week that I did last week. But the uh, new topic... Or the topic to really go over is this border deal, which last week we did not have the bill there. And this week we do have the bill there. The bill came out yesterday and it is worse than we could have ever expected. So we'll talk probably a little bit about the immigration issue. Where is it heading and what is, you know, people are trying to accept with these immigration levels and with the legislative branch. I'll probably talk a little bit about the future of the legislative branch in Congress and what it actually does. Uh, the real answer is going to be not much of anything and what our solution should be going forward. So the bill came out and, you know, they've been saying there's been so much misinformation about this bill. And even Langford was saying this bill has been lied about so much And they've been saying that this bill will allow 5,000 migrants per day. And then the bill comes out, and he's talking about this bill as it's out. And literally in the bill, it says, we will only shut down the border with 5,000 migrants there. And they're not even shutting down the border. They just direct them to the ports of entry, which it's like, oh, you came to, you know, Eagle Pass, like one of those spots. It's like, oh, sorry, can't let you through. You got to go to the ports of entry. And then they go to the ports of entry. They get their asylum court date. And voila, they're off. And they try to speed up the asylum court dates by taking it out of immigration judges' hands and gives it to liberal bureaucrats, asylum officers, that the Biden administration is hiring. And of course, course, I bet these guys are going to be really strong and stern with these asylum cases. And so... They're going to speed up the process to give all these people asylum. You know, they're going to have, there's not going to be a limit on asylum. There's no cap on asylum. They're still going to be cut and released. They said they in catch and release. They actually don't. They just keep releasing them. Now, <clears throat> I think if they catch them after the 5,000 migrant cap is met and they're trying to lower it to 75%, which would be 3,750 migrants per, per day, are the rolling average. And also you have to remember, this is just 5,000 migrants daily average over a week. And so, you know, you could have 4,500 average. And then one day, you know, maybe it's Monday and it hits 5,000, but it's a new rolling average. So that doesn't matter. So as long as the, and if you had just 4,000 migrants coming in, Every day, you know, it wouldn't trigger anything. And 4,000 migrants per day, 30 days, 120,000. That's a lot. So, and as I said last week, pretty much the goal is just to keep the border below 150,000 migrants per month. And that's still an incredibly high figure. As I said last week, I mean, the highest figure under Trump was 132,000 just for one month. Now that's the goal. That's the goal to have for migrants. And as long as it's below 150,000, they consider it a huge win. And so if they want to just get 75%, you know, that would be 
roughly a little over 100,000 migrants per month. And that's still an, an insane amount of people coming across the border. That's still a very high amount of people. And if you had over 100, you know, if their target goal, you know, 75%, we'll just put 4,000 because I don't want to do 3750 times 30. But let's say it's just, you know, 4,000 they would not trigger. So if you're having 120,000 migrants per month, you know, you have almost uh, 1.5 million migrants per year. And those are illegals that you're encountering. And once again, those are just the migrants that they're encountering. There's also the ones that get, get away, which is another uh, roughly 50,000 migrants per month. And that's not counting the migrants they're letting in legally through all these legal pathways. Because once again, this bill does not restrict Biden's ability to grant parole to these migrants. They're allowed in, you know, and under parole program, he's been letting in uh, you know, tens of thousands every month. So there's been about 30, uh, under the main parole program, there's been a 30,000 migrants from four different countries, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Haiti are allowed in per every month. And so 30,000 per month, every month, 360,000 per year. They're let in. Then there's the ones who apply through the CBP-1 program, which... That lets in, oh, that lets in a lot. That lets in, I think, uh, I think it lets in about 40,000 per month, at least. It might be closer to 50,000 per month. And they've been finding other mechanisms that are similar to parole to let in. And so they've been letting in over the last year uh, about 75,000 to 80,000 uh, would be illegals into this country every month. And that's a lot, you know, that. You know, two, if you're letting in 75,000 per month, you know, and times 12, that's close to a million. I know our math is not the, the strongest suit of highly respected, but it, yeah, it's close to a million that they would have been. And that's not even counting the migrants that they're letting in legal, that the normal legal paths, which that's always been about a million. And then increasing, you know, our refugee intake, I think it's over two, I think it's, um, around 100,000 now uh, per year. And then you have, uh, you know, and they, they've been granting parole to a lot of Ukrainians. I forgot about that. That's a different, that's a separate parole program uh, from the paroles that they've been given to the Latin American countries. But I, to be honest, I don't really care that much about giving parole to Ukrainians. Um, that's actually probably one of our only okay um, immigrant programs. But they've also been giving parole to a ton of Afghans. Um, I forget the numbers. It's it's over, it's well over 70,000 that they've given parole to Afghans. And, you know, so it's like, it's not, the numbers itself are outrageous. Uh, counting, so let's say 1.5 million illegals coming into this country every year is the goal. That would be like huge victory, 1.5 million, because we've been having over 2 million. Uh, I think 2021 may have not been 2 million, but it was close. But 2022, 2023 were definitely over 2 million. And once again, these are just ones they encountered. And most of these people immediately released, given a court date, don't have to worry about deportation unless they murder somebody. And then they'd have to wait, you know, till their murder sentence is out. Pretty much they have to murder somebody to get deported. Uh, you know, they've, there's been a bunch who've committed like serious assault, 
even sexual assault, and they've been allowed to stay in the country. So that's uh, they really just have to kill somebody to even be deported to even have the threat of deportation. And Mayorkas even said that you know they announced that it was in 2021 that they would not deport anyone unless they committed a very serious crime and. It's pretty much just murder. I guess rape uh, in some cases, but, uh, you know, assault, DUI, robbery, they don't have to worry about it. So pretty much nearly all illegals don't have to worry about deportation. And so that's like our immigration figure. So they want to keep it 1.5, 1.5 to 1.8. 1.8 is the maximum they'll tolerate. So you have that those numbers. Then you have nearly a million uh illegals or would be illegals are migrants coming in through parole program and cbb1 and other means you have about a million so we're up to 2.5 million migrants every year then we have the other then we have the ones that are gotaways which that can be you know uh, at least half a million it's probably more i think it actually in the last two years, it's probably been a, at least a million. But maybe with the new security mechanisms, they'll get it to half a million or six hundred thousand. So you're well over to you've, you're well over three million. And now you have the legal immigrants that come in. So you're so you're having about four million immigrants come to this country every year, and that's. That's under a the ideal system that wants to be built up by this Senate deal, and the Senate deal is increasing legal immigration. It's giving fifty thousand more. Uh, you know, it's granting fifty thousand more visas every year. So you are having an astronomical amount of immigrants that are coming to this country, and under Biden so far, we've had had over two million um, immigrants come to this country. If you count the illegals. You know, both ones we encountered and didn't counter. If you count the people that they've let in legally that are supposed to be temporary, which they're not temporary. They basically get to stay here uh, till their heart's content. And then you count the legal migrants that are coming in, um, you know, through the normal mechanisms, which is about, roughly about a million. You know, it's well over 10 million immigrants that have come here. It's probably more, <laughs> but it's hard to gauge how much it is. <coughs> but... Yeah, but even with just the illegal immigrants, I mean, if you count the gotaways, which, um, you know, say it's 50,000 per month, uh, that's been ever, it's probably been more, you know, that's probably almost 3 million now, um, pretty close to it. And then the ones we've encountered, that's well over, that's got to be over 6 million now and probably close to 7 million. And so just like the illegal immigrants, I think it's just been nearly 10 million. Um, and then you count the legal ones, you know, it's, uh, it's probably another, it's almost close to another 5 million. So that's how many immigrants have come to this country just under Biden. Now he's been granting more legal access, like most of the parole program, the parole program and the CBP one, uh, asylum app that were massively expanded in 2023. Uh, so there weren't that many getting parole. I mean, besides like Afghans and Ukrainians before, um, 2023, but still lots of, uh, lots of them coming in legally anyway. So it's well over 10 million that have come into this country. And that's a, you know, that's 3% of the population, you know, that 
that you know we already have you know we have over 300 million americans it's 327 million uh, americans at this moment and you know 10 percent of the <laughs> we've gotten over three percent of that population uh coming across our country for to migrate and so this is like a huge problem and the senate deal doesn't do shit it doesn't do anything for this. First off, all this like the shutting down the border and strongly enforcing immigration law and all this stuff, Biden can do that already without Senate authors, without congressional authorization. He can do all this stuff right now. He's got the authority to do this. You know, they didn't have to pass Title 42, which was a mechanism that we were using to expedite deportations uh, during COVID and lockdowns, and they kept it around under Biden because it was needed to somewhat contain the border. They can do all this stuff right now. Remain in Mexico didn't, that Trump put in place didn't require congressional authorization. The, all this stuff, the bill itself, all the good things about it, you know, if, if Biden said he wanted to shut down the border at 5,000 with, you know, if it hits a certain cap and start enforcing the law and expediting deportations, he can do that right now. He doesn't need congressional authority. But the reason why he wants congressional authority is because he wants to be perceived as passing a law. He wants the thing as seeing as a, we did this legislatively. And he also wants there to be Democrat support for it. And because if he just did this on his own, his left-wing base would, you know, would be outraged. They, couldn't, they would not be happy with that result. So he wants the bill to pass to say, oh, Democrats and Republicans gave me this authority and now I'm able to do something about immigration. And, but, you know, he doesn't really need that. And, but the real thing is they want to help increase uh, the legal immigration process or this process to go along because the bill also contains funding for more asylum officers. So more of these people can be hired so they can grant asylum to more immigrants so they can legalize these people effectively legalize these people. It also provides millions uh, more dollars to these NGOs, these Catholic charities and others who, you know, various other religious groups, you know, there's highest and others who are involved in bringing these migrants here. We give them more money. So that helps along the legal, you know, bringing in more foreigners to the country. There's also the 50,000 additional uh, green cards that come through this bill. And so any reason that they need this bill, it's just to it's just to help left-wing objectives to further advance the great replacement. There's no need everything else with the the things that Republicans would want, they don't even need a bill to do that. Biden could do all that stuff right now. It's just making Republicans agree to these concessions so he can overall continue to ensure that more and more foreigners come to this country, but they contain it at, you know, under 2 million coming per year, which apparently is a figure that they can uh, handle. And, but over 2 million is too much. And they allow that to happen, but they're not actually going to, you know, anything else that they're actually going to do. They're not seriously containing immigration. It's just this bill is just an acceptance that they can't really stop immigration. They can't really stop immigration to the level that the American, American people want. 
is that we're and it's accepting uh, an insane level of high of illegal immigration. It is expanding legal immigration, and there's hardly any enforcement or anything of that sort. And generally, it really does enshrine that all these migrants can claim asylum, and due to the now asylum officers hearing their case rather than judges they're going to be given asylum. So asylum is going to be wildly abused. And also pro program, as I mentioned earlier, is not cut. So Biden, if he feels like he wants to offer more legal pathways to illegals, he can, he can do that. He can offer more, he can offer more pro programs. I think the best summary of the bill uh, came from Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, who is trying to sell it to liberals that this is actually an awesome bill and secures our interests. And so he did a whole thread on this and he said, <clears throat> you know, the text of the bipartisan national security funding bill was released. It funds Ukraine, Israel and humanitarian relief, secures our border and reforms our asylum law. As the co-author of the immigration provisions, here's a thread on the key elements. First, it would be easy just to keep immigration and border policy as a political cudgel for another 40 years. But politics at its best is about finding bipartisan compromise on the toughest issues. That's what we've done here. Here's a snapshot of what's in the bill. A quicker, fairer asylum process. No more 10-year wait. Claims process in a non-detained, non-adversarial way in six months. Oh, wow. That's very nice. A slightly higher asylum screening standard at the border. Slightly higher. Not higher at all. Also, no more waiting for work permits. Most asylum seekers can work immediately. Awesome. This is exactly what the right wants. A brand new right to legal representation for all immigrants. Awesome. Remember when Trump denied lawyers to victims of the Muslim man? Victims of the Muslim man. Never again. And the first ever government paid for lawyers for young unaccompanied minors. A long-standing injustice right. So this ensures that they can uh, definitely stay here. A requirement the president to funnel asylum claims to the land ports of entry where more than 5,000 people cross a day. The border never closes, but claims must be processed at the ports. Once again, they said that the border would close. They would fully close the border. Actually, it doesn't. They just funnel them to the, uh, to the land ports of entry. This allows for a more orderly and humane asylum processing system. But in short, important checks on that power. Oh, this is, Biden wouldn't be able to use it this very often. It can only be used for a limited number of days per year. It sunsets in three years. Emergency cases that show up in between the ports still need to be accepted. So if you just say, oh, um, I'm really afraid of going home, then they'd be accepted. Uh, so there's so many exceptions that it would be worthless. Anyway, back to what Murphy was saying. The ports must process a minimum of 1,400 claims a day. That is an insane amount of claims. Um, that's a lot of people. You can't reduce arrivals of the border without allowing for more legal immigration. So more visas, 50,000 extra employment and family reunification visas each year for the next five years, and a brand new visa category to allow non-citizens to visit family in the U.S. A clarification of how humanitarian pro parole is used at land borders, but no changes to the president's ability to bring in vetted, sponsored migrants to the pro program known as CNHV, Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela parole. A new pathway to citizenship for Afghan parolees. 
Uh, and the children of H-1B holders. These kids are often currently subject to deportation when they become 21. The bill helps fix the border and reform our broken asylum system. But it doesn't deviate from our nation's core values. We are a nation that rescues people from terror and violence. We are a nation that is stronger because of our immigration, or because of our tradition of immigration. Period. Stop. I don't know why he had it stopped there. But that is it. So I think Murphy did a heck of a job illustrating the bill and why Republicans shouldn't support it. I mean, I don't know. You, you, none of the Republican critics could really make a better case against this bill than Chris Murphy. I mean, everything in the every tweet in that thread would should encourage Republican opposition. And now James Langford is like, oh, this bill's so tough. He didn't do a thread on this. He just released a he released a um, you know a little press release. That was inaccurate. It's saying like 5,000 migrants per week, they would shut down. Uh, no, it's per day. It's not It's not per week. It's per week or it's per day. And but that, you know, he tried to muddy the waters on that and make it clear. So Langford and all his crew. And there are so many funny claims like Mike Rounds. I think it was Mike Rounds was claiming it was a North Dakota center, one of the Dakotas. He was saying that. You know, there's Russian misinformation uh, that is uh, making people uh, doubt this bill. Yeah, it was Mike Rounds, who's a South Dakota senator, who's saying Russia may be behind the criticism of the bill when it's literally coming from the House. It's coming from House conservatives. It's coming from Trump. It's coming from Mike Johnson. It's coming from others. And it's coming from even their own Senate colleagues. But they're like, I think a lot of these Internet rumors are coming from Russia. And then the bill comes out and it's like uh, Internet rumors confirmed. And all these Internet rumors, it was so stupid. They really just have an a contempt and an insulting level of respect for their audiences that they think that these people are so stupid. It's like, well, don't believe everything on the Internet. And then it comes out and these rumors were based on sources working on the bill being repeated in the most reputed outlets in America. And also, none of these guys ever specifically denied any of the claims that were being re released. And then all these claims were 100% confirmed. And actually, the bill is even worse than we could have expected. And, you know, there's even... There's all there, there's so many exceptions to the bill that they would even allow more than 5,000 migrants per day. Because, you know, if you're not coming from a non-contiguous country and you can't, can't be deported, there's so many exceptions to this bill that this is just enshrining the status quo. And it anything that is positive, as I said, Biden can already do. So there's there's no point to this bill. And But the good news is it's never going to survive. Republican House leadership, both Johnson and Scalise, says this bill will never come up for a vote in the House. There's also a surprising number of senators who are who are opposing it. Steve Daines, who is head of the NRSC, you know, National Republican Senate Committee, is saying that they're not going to support. He's not going to support this bill. And I got the the name National Republican Senatorial Committee, not Senate Committee. Uh, senatorial committee which is runs all the campaigns for and helps organize the campaigns for republicans he's opposed to that that's a big deal um it's really just a few it's like cornyn lankford graham romney rounds uh mcconnell 
but I think McConnell's not is is backing off because he has to be more of the leader, and some some others are not as eager for this bill. Danes is a very important uh, no vote. That is like a sign that most of the Republicans, outside the ones who have actually been in, involved in the negotiations, Tom Tellis would definitely vote for it. He will vote for any type of immigration increase. Uh, so they might not even have nine Republicans to vote for this. They also might not have all Democrats vote for this because there's a lot of left-wing Democrats who don't want to vote for this at all. And they may not feel beholden to vote for it because they don't want to piss off their base and they don't want to piss off their base to vote for something that's not even going to pass. So there probably will be, there may be a few Democrats who would vote against this in the Senate. I don't know if it's even going to pass the Senate. Um if if there's a you know about a handful of democratic dissidents and only about six or seven republicans vote for it you know it's not going to pass uh, you know it's not going to it's not going to pass uh, over a filibuster so that's one thing and it's just not going to pass the the house now it is tied to ukraine funding which you know the entire congress wants to fund ukraine so i don't know what's going to happen with ukraine funding and Israel funding if without this bill. Uh, my my imagine I imagine that even though Republicans were demanding that Ukraine funding must be tied to a border, I think all the ones who are demanding that realize that their border bill Republicans rejected, they'll just pass a Ukraine funding, you know, standalone bill, probably will pass. Uh, that's not that good, but I think um, I think the fact that sending the message to Zelensky that, you know, the money's not guaranteed will force him to make a peace deal soon enough this year, uh, which is a good thing. So that's one thing to consider. And so that that's it. I mean, I had, the other thing to talk about the border bill is I was seeing people like say, well, Johnson is firmly opposed to this bill. And this shows that this was a huge improvement. I think McCarthy would have also opposed it because McCarthy McCarthy is much more beholden to his House caucus, to the conservatives of his House caucus than McConnell is with his caucus. And he was also beholden to Trump too, as Johnson is as well. And he would have known that he may have personally supported it, unlike you know Johnson. I don't know if Johnson would have actually wanted it, but he... McCarthy would have realized that his political fortunes depend on opposing this and maintaining the House majority, and he would have probably opposed it. The only person I could have seen who had opposed it, I mean, Steve Scalise strongly opposes it. Uh, that might just be leadership talking as a unit, as a unit. but the only one who I would have certain may have actually supported is Tom Emmer, and Tom Emmer was supported by Matt Gates, who led the charge against against um, McCarthy, which is like funny because like Emmert was like the worst possibility to be uh, the candidate. So you could say this is at least proves Johnson is at least is, is doing something good in this moment is that he's not cucking. He's not betraying the base. He's not betraying you know Republican voters in this matter and he's sticking by his guns and the fact that he's strongly opposed to this and not wavering in that and it's also due a lot to trump because trump is strongly opposed to this and doesn't want it to happen and republicans the fact that trump is basically the party nominee it you know 
Not yet official, not yet 100%, but he is going to be the nominee that they all have to line up and listen to what he says. And he has immense influence and power over what they are going to support. And he's opposed to this bill. So the fact that they're all standing strong is a good sign. And Johnson is there. So maybe you could say that Johnson is an improvement, even though I think McCarthy would have reluctantly opposed it. So maybe it is a better sign that Johnson is resolutely opposed to it. But some of the other alternatives they wanted, um, I think, may have backed it. Jordan wouldn't have backed it, though, obviously. So, yes, that is a good thing about Johnson. But it's more just how the House caucus is. The House caucus is much more conservative than the Senate caucus. And the House leadership is much more beholden to Trump and what the caucus and conservatives than the leadership of the Senate, Senate Republican caucus. So that's it. Uh, one other thing is like Langford. A lot of people are talking about primary Langford. They'd have to wait till 2026. People may forget about this in a year, the bill in a year. Um, and people do forget about this stuff. I remember Gang of Eight, um, the amnesty, you know, that was very unpopular. Um, less pop, it was actually more popular than this because there was a lot more conservative media promoting it while no conservative media is promoting this. And, you know, they got 67 votes for maybe even 68 votes in the Senate for the Gang of Eight amnesty. It just died in the House due to House caucus being much more conservative and much more opposed to it. It never got up for a vote and it could have come up for a vote. But Eric Cantor, who was the majority leader at that time, lost his election to a guy who ran solely on immigration and opposition to amnesty. And that sent a signal to Republican House Republicans that they shouldn't try this. And Cantor was the most eager advocate for an amnesty bill among House Republican leadership at that time. So that, but there were people who were like, we're going to primary a lot of these people involved in it. I mean, it did happen to Cantor, <laughs> Cantor. Uh, but I don't know, people may forget about this Langford, um, his dealings in this. Hopefully not. They need to really get rid of Langford. Langford is definitely one of the five worst Republican senators that they have. Tom Tillis is another terrible one. And... Uh, Susan Collins and Murkowski, you can't really get rid of due to the uniqueness of their states. But in the states you can get rid of uh, that have, you know, normal Murkowski, you should be able to get rid of. But the way Alaska elections work now, where they have ranked choice, it's ensured that Murkowski is going to stay there forever, <coughs> which ranked choice is just terrible uh, politics. Uh, we really need a ban ranked choice. I'm firmly opposed to ranked choice elections. Um, but in there, in those states, you know, they're probably, I don't know if they'll ever get little Lindsey Graham. They've tried to have primaries against it, but they just can't. Uh, Cornyn is really bad. The main thing is to ensure Cornyn doesn't become a leader if uh, after the next election, you know, McConnell steps down from uh, majority leadership uh, or leadership of the caucus, which is likely. Uh, Cornyn is slated to be the favorite or one of the favorites to secede him, and he would be worse than McConnell. He is absolutely probably one of the worst senators that they have. I would say the trio of worst senators are Cornyn, Lankford, and Tillis. You could throw in Graham in there. He'd be fourth. But Graham, you know, Graham is bad on a lot of issues, but there are some decent things is that unlike them, he's a strong Trump supporter. 
And he's also very good on getting judicial appointments and standing with the judicial nominees in a way that Cornyn, Tim Scott and others, you know, Tim Scott was responsible for a lot of these for at least two Trump judicial appointments uh, getting sacked or getting removed because they apparently said something offensive or attacked multiculturalism. Graham always stood, stood by, you know, Graham really stood by Kavanaugh. Uh, during his ordeal, he'd stand by pretty much any judicial appointment, and he stands by Trump. Uh, he'd still be one of the worst, but I would say Cornyn, Tillis, Lankford are even worse than he is on pretty much every issue. You know, foreign policy, immigration, race. Cornyn's responsible for Juneteenth becoming a national holiday, and many other things. And 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 Lankford's been a longtime advocate of more refugee resettlement and other things. And Tillis is always involved in these immigration negotiations as well. So there are very bad uh, Republicans. So hopefully we can uh, start primarying them. I think both. I think both Cornyn and Tillis are up in 2026. And so actually, all three of them: Cornyn, Tillis, Lankford. Uh, are all up in 2026. So it'd be great if they got primaried. Hopefully they do get primary, but um, little, my, I want to don't raise my hopes too high, but maybe if this, this does start the ball rolling and conservative media turns Lankford into one of its main villains, that there could be a serious challenger to him. And that would be awesome. I do think that this is a, <clears throat> a party that's more likely to primary people than it has ever been. I think the primary threats are more real than probably 2010 or 2012 when the real height of the Tea Party was there. When in 2014, the, the Tea Party threats fizzled. The only Tea Party threat uh, in these primaries that worked was Eric Cantor. And that was the one who got the least amount of money and least amount of attention than all these others. There were tons of guys who ran against senators or congressmen who are there was these primaries pitting people to, between who is the more the most Tea Party guy and <clears throat> none of them really turned out uh, that well. It really fizzled out the Tea Party revolt and they thought this was the establishment regaining control and then Trump came down the escalator in 2015 and and uh, shook up things to say the least. But in 2010 and 2012, they were actually having very successful primary challengers. There were still like very liberal Republicans at that time. Um, more, I mean, we still have like fairly liberal Republicans, but even like somebody like Cornyn would technically be more conservative than some of these guys who are losing their seats in 2010 and 2012 and primary challenges. So that was a very different time. But ever since like Trump was there, ever since like 2014, primary threats have been very weak. That's until Trump began backing all these guys who voted against him or voted for his impeachment. And they got rid of pretty much most of them, either through the threats of these people didn't want to run again, so they retired, or they lost their seats. I believe only one person who voted for Trump's impeachment survived. And I think that's Dan Newhouse, if I'm not mistaken, uh, from Washington. And he barely barely won his seat in 2022 or in the primary challenge. He nearly lost it. All the others lost it. And, you know, like Liz Cheney, uh, 
the uh, uh, Meyer, Peter Meyer, and and Michigan, and several others, they all lost their seats in these primaries. So now there's much more of a likelihood of these guys losing their seats, especially if Trump backs a primary challenger. And if he's the president and he, you know, he backs a primary challenge against Langford, uh, that really hurts Langford. And he may do that, but Langford may come kiss the ring and say, please don't back a primary challenge to me. A lot of these guys were really worried about primary challenges to them and, and begged Trump for an endorsement. And Trump in his... Um, and his um, naivete or his ignorance backed them like Tom Tellesy did this. And I think Cornyn is well, but Cornyn didn't really have a serious primary challenger in 2020. I think T- Tillis did. Uh, but it would be great if all three of them got um, Trump back primary challenges and he could make the party, push the party in a more America first direction. And I think there is uh, the primary challenges are more serious now than it back in the 2010s uh, for at least from the latter half of the 2010s so that's one good thing and that's and that was shown by what happened to the people who voted for impeachment they all thought like oh i don't have to worry about primary threat and then they lost their primaries so why did this even bill come out i mean they had to know that the house (coughs) republicans weren't going to go for it so why did they agree to this the real answer is that they realized the negotiators republican negotiators realized that this was the only thing that democrats would accept and the fact that Chris Murphy was able to uh, articulate, advocate for the bill for it being extremely liberal and, and in line with Democrat principles and priorities is shows like that's pretty much all Democrats would agree to. Democrats will don't, there's no ability, there's no real chance of a serious bipartisan compromise bill on immigration to come through uh, Congress. This bill doesn't give Republicans anything. It doesn't really give, I mean, it doesn't really give Democrats much of anything. All it is is just gives Congress, goes up to Biden and says, look, all these powers you already have and can use right now, you can use uh, at a certain level. And we accept that there's going to be at least 1.5 million illegal immigrants coming to our country every year. Uh, but please make sure it doesn't exceed $2 million. And that's essentially what the bill's saying. And that's all the Democrats would agree to. And so it really just points out how useless the legislative branch is. The legislative branch in America is, despite the fact our founders thought it would be the most powerful branch, it was supposed to be the branch that made all our decisions, it pretty much makes no decisions and it's just kind of there to argue and not do anything. <laughs> and some people are like, well, I wish they could get together and do bipartisan compromise. The problem is, is all bipartisan compromises would be terrible, uh, completely terrible. And also, there's not much of an initiative for either side to make these compromises because they're going to agitate. They're going to alienate their base if they do these things. So there's no real there's nothing going to come from Congress ever. And there's some there's some serious problems with that because, you know, we do, you know, the debt is a is an issue. I think, you know, maybe conservatives overstate uh, how much of an issue it could be, but it is a problem. But legislative branch is never going to do anything about it. Uh, the entitlements are going to be an issue of like, you know, eventually we're going to run out of money to pay for Social Security. 
that Congress is never going to do anything because there's no incentive to do anything about it. And actually doing something about it is politically hazardous. So no one's going to ever do anything about it. And there's just a wide range of issues. There's like a serious immigration reform, you know, that we would want to see, like restriction. It's never going to come through Congress. It really all decisions have to be done through the executive branch and then just upheld by the judicial branch. And the judicial branch is appointed. So actually, the really only important thing for the legislative branch to do is to confirm judges and the president to appoint the judges. Senate confirmed them and the House of Representatives just doesn't do jack shit. I mean, they can approve funding for the government, but all their funding bills are just these continuing resolutions that are supposed to be stopgap measures until they get a full funding thing. But they can't ever agree on a real like long lasting uh, funding package. So we just have to keep kicking the can down the road. And that ensures we're never going to cut government spending or deal with the debt or or any of these massive reforms that we need. So uh, really all they do is just confirm uh, judicial candidates, uh, judicial appointments. And then once that happens, the president can then make actions is that, you know, they can restrict immigration and enforce immigration law just through the executive branch. Don't really need Congress to do anything about it. And then once they do these actions, they just have to ensure the judicial branch upholds this. And that's done by and that's done by appointments by the president. So really, it's just the executive branch and the uh, judicial branch that make policy in America. Legislative branch, all it's there to do is to pass temporary funding bills and confirm judicial appointments, and to ensure that Democrats don't try to pass anything terrible if they control the White House. And so. Uh, that's that's the legislative branch. So everyone's like, oh, man, maybe we can pass like immigration restriction through Congress. It's like, uh, no, we can't. You just have to hope the president does that through his own, through executive action, which Trump was able to do. There's never going to be, I mean, well, I don't want to say never. Uh, but in the near future, uh, you know, for the rest of the decade, there's never going to be a tight, an immigration restriction pass uh, package through Congress, unless somehow Republicans get 60 senators, maybe, I don't know how that'll happen, but maybe, well, let's just say maybe, uh, maybe there's a huge red wave sometime in the late 2020s, uh, and then they have a strong majority in the House. Uh, This won't happen in 2024. They'll win the Senate in 2024. And also, if Trump isn't convicted, I think they're going to definitely win the White House. And even if he is convicted, they still might win the White House. Um, I'm more uh, bullish on them winning the White House than on them them retaining control of the House due to redistricting and a lot of other matters. But this isn't probably going to happen in 2024. So it's all up to getting President Trump in office and him just doing a lot of great stuff through executive power and having remaking the judiciary to uphold these actions. And then we can get some real shit done. You're just not going to expect it through the legislative branch. The legislative branch is just effectively pointless at this point. Uh, Pointless at this point, but pointless at this time. And that's just something we have to deal with. And this is further confirmed by this bill that is has no real purpose and all and really the president on his own can do all the good things and in, in it right now but he chooses not to because he doesn't want to alienate his democratic base and so that's uh that's 
the real talking points on the border bill. But the good news is that it's not going to pass. It's it's thankful it doesn't. I mean, a lot of Republicans are, and some Democrats are like, oh, they're just trying to play politics and election game politics. They're trying to, uh, we're trying to solve the issue, but they just want to make this an issue in the campaign. And really, in fact, you know, even if that, even if it was true, it probably is. That's a legitimate, that's actually a legitimate reason to kill the bill. Because guess what? They think that they can knock this issue off the headlines and the front pages if they get the numbers below 150,000. And they are correct. And they're correct. But that is still an invasion. That is still a border crisis. But they feel that relative to 300,000 per month, that 130,000 per month is just like nobody's coming across. But if you look historically, that's insanely high numbers. That's higher than that is the highest one month total. And that was just for one month, one month. It, there was only like f- four or five months where it ever got above 100,000 under Trump. That's now what they want to have the new normal and to say that it's not a problem. To, it's better to keep having this at 200,000 than to, and there being all... Or let me rephrase this. It's better to keep it at 200,000 than to have it at 150,000. But in that 150,000, they are in certain that these people are going to be here permanently. They're getting work permits. They're finding legal ways to get to the country. There's ways for these people to be legalized. Also, the asylum process is that it's better. Actually, it's much better for the system where these people have court dates into 2028 which a lot of them do. Some of them even have court dates in the 2030s. That's how ridiculous this is. But it's better for that to happen than then to have a, a asylum officer hear their case and them granting asylum because it's then much harder to deport them. All these people with waiting in line to for, you know, for their asylum court date, if Trump comes in office, he can deport them. If they have asylum, it becomes much more difficult to deport them. And so it's much better to have the current status quo than to have the worst situation that would be resolved under this bill. Because under this bill, all these migrants would gain a permanent foothold in this country, which now they don't really have that foothold. They don't have the work permits and they don't have their asylum uh, claim vindicated. But so under the status quo, it'd be much easier. And if Trump came into office, it'd be much easier to get them out of the country. And so I think for our country's future, it's much better to have no deal than this horrible deal. And that's my opinion on that. So, but thankfully the House will kill this. So moving on to another subject, it's actually the same subject we talked about last week with the Taylor Swift uh, Super Bowl because there's a little bit more to add. I won't talk about Bobert and the tweet I uh, went viral for, but... Uh, our good friend, I guess I'll say, most people hate him. I'm like the last person who uh, thinks Hanani is entertaining, even though he's been getting annoying. Richard Hanani had an article like Taylor Swift Democrats, and he's arguing that normal middle class white people who, you know, believe there are only two genders are, you know, good looking and by other metrics would be considered by a lot of metrics would be considered conservative and behavior are now turning Democrats because the Republican Party is too abnormal. They're too obsessed with these conspiracy theories around Taylor Swift and other things, and thus 
the Taylor Swift Democrats are normal people who just vote Democrat because they find the Republicans too weird. A lot of people hate at this point, and <clears throat> there are problems with it because we really don't know how middle class whites are going to, college educated whites are going to vote in 2024. I mean, we know how they voted in years past, which is not, it's been a demographic we've been losing a lot lately. And I don't really find the Taylor Swift uh, tax or um, when they make it to the political campaign level, they're probably not very effective because people like Taylor Swift. She's inoffensive, largely harmless. I know I don't not that fan much of a fan of her. I know my uh, audience is not much of a fan of her, so I don't want to really want to strongly defend. But most people, they just find it as harmless, wholesome music that they listen to in the car, and it doesn't offend them. Most people like football. That's why I got rid of the NFL pledge from the Greerhead pledge. The NFL playing for the Greerhead pledge. And that was always the most controversial point is when I had that. And now when I bring up the NFL, like all these people are mad at me for even like noticing the NFL. And it's like, unfortunately, you know, this is what Americans like. This is what Americans are into. And we don't really have a counter to that. And um, uh, there's far worse things to be into, I think. I think Marvel movies and uh, weed are probably worse things. There's definitely a bad effect of NFL, and I think it's you know the fact that sports betting and other things are directing a lot of passions that could have otherwise been involved in trying to solve the issues in America. Now these guys are just you know smoking weed and, and sports betting and uh, with all their uh, disposable income. But all, outside of that, there is... You know, the main problem with Republicans is that they are losing college-educated whites. And Hanani argues that the freaks on the right are more prevalent, are more apparent than on the left, which I don't know if that's quite true. I mean, if you look at some of the people that Biden has appointed to his administration, if you look at some of the leaders or some of the you know most popular people in the uh, Democratic Congressional Caucus, or even some of the people who are rising up in the party, uh, they are definitely radicals. But I guess they maybe none of them quite reach the level of Bobert, where every time they go out in public, it's you know, it's a uh, Jerry Springer episode, and they didn't quite pedestal you know Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman and those types in the way that they've pedestaled Bobert and MTG and George Santos, which is, uh, uh, you know, the entire right-wing media is like, this guy is our hero. And it's like, uh, he's a gay Hispanic <laughs> scam artist, but they're like, this is our the guy we want to rally around and, di and die on a hill for. So you have those issues. I don't really agree with this point with, like, Trump. Trump, it's... It is due to the kind of media attention around Trump, but there's also a lot of people who, you know, he really also excites a, a number of people that the Republicans wouldn't get out to vote. So there is a little bit of a, maybe you could say catch-22 with Trump is that there's, he excites enough people to get to the polls, but he does alienate another group of people who would be voting Republican but the, his advantage of turning out people may offset that. The problem with the rest of the Republican Party is that they don't turn out that hardcore demographic that Trump can. 
and they end up losing that demographic that would have otherwise voted for them while they're not turning out the demographics that Trump is turning out for them. And that's been a problem in the midterms and other elections that Trump has not been involved in. And I think it's if you look at 2020, you know, Republicans had pretty good results then. Uh, compared to what they thought it was going to have. They were like, this is going to be, you know, Goldwater-esque, that he's going to be blown out. And it wasn't Goldwater-esque, and they actually did very well, um, even with all the things that were, all the Democratic shenanigans. And so I think in 2024, a lot of these problems that you see in midterms, it's that, you know, Trump's not on the ballot, and he's not turning out these people, but Democrats are still able to turn out a lot of the anti-Trump people are people that Republicans have turned off in those years for their side. But at the same time, Republicans aren't able to turn out these new voters that have come out for them uh, due to Trump. But I don't know. It is like the real key question of how to bring middle class whites back to the Republican fold. And a lot of our side just like we're not going to have them. We're just going to have... They imagine there's this huge reservoir of working class whites who are insanely based and are, you know, millions and millions of people that are just ready to vote. And you'll just they just need socialism or something uh, based socialism and they'll come out and vote. And that's generally what a lot of this strategy is involved in or, you know, double down on social conservatism and stuff. And then you'll turn out the votes, which this has not really worked out for them. And I think when, you know, Trump is eventually going to depart from the political scene, um, you know, maybe sooner rather than later, uh, he will, you know, after 2028, he will, you know, if he, after his second term, he will no longer be the centerpiece of the Republican party and they will have to move on in a different direction. And I think the real problem, if they go down with Trumpism without Trump, and as I've argued in a lot of these articles, Trumpism without Trump is ultimately just the insane clown party uh, without any of the characteristics uh, that made Trump the type of person worthy of support. You know, it's just going to be total clownishness, no identitarianism. And also, worst of all, it's not really turning out the type of audience to get um, to offset any electoral disadvantages because they don't have the charismatic leadership of Trump there. So Trumpism without Trump could ultimately just be that. I mean, we would much rather have it as, I guess, a more respectable America first nationalism, you could say. But I think it could just end up with you know, George Santos. (laughs) And so that could just be end up with that. And that's also going to further exacerbate the problems with winning uh, middle class college educated whites. And so I don't think the Taylor Swift conspiracy theories are really uh, helpful. I don't know if they're really true. (laughs) I don't don't think she's a defense department asset. Uh, You know, I'm going to go out on a limb on that. I think and she... She could use her influence to really campaign for Biden, but I don't think she wants to because she is ultimately an entrepreneur. You know, she, she's worried about making as much money as possible, and she's got a new album out. And even her dipping into politics, it's been tepid compared to other celebrities. And I think that's what's given her so much popularity is that even a lot of Taylor Swift fans probably wouldn't be aware that she's even like super liberal. Uh, I've talked to people who are like not that pol- political and they weren't aware that Taylor Swift was had been in, had said anything political before. And they like Taylor Swift. 
but she, you know, she is having an effect with getting more people registered to vote. And her main thing this year may be just saying, I'm for Biden, but her main is just getting people, her fans registered to vote. And pretty much most of those fans, if they're registered to vote, young white women, well, young women in general, are probably going to vote Democrat. Uh, because we have, the Republicans literally have no message. <laughs> I mean, some ways that's, you know, just the necessary fact, but Republicans really are, do not have an appealing message to young women. I guess you could say crime, but some of these women don't live in areas where it's a lot of crime. You know, if they're, there's like a few metropolitan areas where they have to worry about it, but, and, you know, if they're like living in Nashville, where the vote wouldn't matter? Well, Atlanta, Certain parts of Atlanta, actually Atlanta has a crime. I'd have to think um, of a battleground state. Maybe Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh doesn't really have much of a crime problem uh, compared to other cities. Or, you know, Phoenix. That's like an area that doesn't really have a crime problem. Uh, you know, these people, you know, the crime issues, like they're going to like, I, well, it doesn't really affect me. And I'm more worried about my access to abortion. And Taylor and T. Swift tells me I need to vote Democrat. And um, I'm seeing what the Republicans are offering and I'm not enthused by it. So there is something to the Taylor Swift Democrat thing. But this, the problem is, is that Democrats could be so terrible with the economy, with immigration, with a lot of other things that these people will just hold their noses and vote Trump anyway in this election and i think it's more likely for that to happen than in uh 2020 it, but it's all dependent on how much of a issue abortion is democrats really want to make this the number one issue in the election because it's literally the only thing that favors them uh, every other issue disfavors them maybe except for trump's legal problems <laughs> but that might not be as big of an issue if trump doesn't get convicted so that is something to keep in mind. Um, I do think we need to think more. I mean, some of this topic is what I discussed last week. We do need to keep more in mind about how to win back the Taylor Swift Democrats. And and I think that is a lot of like college-educated whites. I do, we do have this impression that these people are like the most insane resistance libtards on Twitter when we imagine them. <clears throat> you know, that they're like... I can't wait to change my child's gender. Uh, we have like anti-white signs, you know, hate has no home here signs in our front lawn. And they're just like crazy like that. I don't think that's like a majority of them. That's not the majority of like those who are voting Democrat. A lot of them are people who generally think that there's wokeness has gone too far they do find a lot of the new gender norms at work um, annoying, at least annoying. They're not big fans of crime, <laughs> as most people are. But, you know, there's some leftists who just look the other way. And, they, you know, they don't like the way that Biden's running the economy. But they do feel that there's, it's so, um, they feel that it's so low status to vote Republican now that they'll just vote Democrat. And so there is something wrong with that, that they'll uh, vote against their own interests, which what they are doing when they're voting Democrat, because they're voting for a party that's going to tax them more, that's going to try to put Section 8 housing in their suburb, that's going to want to bring crime to their suburb, and it's wanting to make their uh, kids' education worse, and just a lot of other things. 
but they'll vote against their interests because they feel Republicans are too distasteful. And I don't think this group is hopeless, but I do think it needs to be serious consider consideration of how to win them over. Because if you can't win them over, I think Republicans are going to... Because Republican electoral fortunes are very different than how we thought in 2012, which we thought we would continue to get the white vote, but we Republicans were like, oh, we're going to lose all these minorities, so we have to really uh, dedicate ourselves to winning Hispanics. And now Trump is probably going to get over 40% of the Hispanic vote in the election, which you know would have you know sent these people into... Uh, you know, into heaven back in 2012 with getting that high of a vote. But at the same time, he's losing more of the college educated white vote. And it's looking like it's more important to get the college educated white vote than the Hispanic vote. So that's like the issues on that. Now I'm going to go into the Cod League questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Cod League option at highly respected or highly dash respected dot com is highly respected substack i do think if you type in highly dot or highly respected dot substack.com you'd still come to the website but whichever way you go there make sure to sign for the kind of elite option if you want to ask me guests or ask me questions or suggest guests and topics and make sure to sign up for the iq supplements while you're there so I'll start off with Augsburg because it deals with what we talked about last. So he's like, after reading Richard Anania's recent article on Taylor Swift, it got me thinking, is being apolitical the new way to avoid the problems of the insane clown party? Anania made the point that conservatives are failing to be normal in the eyes of middle class, white middle class females because they read everything as woke well, political conspiracy theory. He seemed to insinuate that the right success in the mid-2010s was in reaction to the SJWs making everything political, i.e. the personal is the political. And the right appeared to be normal in contrast to this, just wanting to grill, etc. Is the key to winning over the super, suburban moms and educated white elite is to simply appear to be normal and politically indifferent, or at the very least, appear to be reasonable? I feel like your rightful concern about the insane clown party doesn't lend itself to to go as far as Hanani on this point, he seems to want to appeal to the awfuls and show them that good men who aren't creepy really do exist on the right. I, I, sometimes I'm not quite sure what Hanani is up to, but I would say, well, you have to appear political because <laughs> that's all we're talking about. But it's more about just being normal and reasonable. And I don't think that all the conspiracy theories um, really uh, help that. But the one thing is that in the 2000s and for a long time, there are a lot of left-wing conspiracy theorists. Is that there was a lot of these people who were on the left who would have had these ideas. Now, the left still has conspiracy theories, but it's all relating to Russia. That is literally the only conspiracy theory that they're into. Is just the Russia controls like the entire right, control the Trump White House. And we're going to see more of that come back. But that's literally the only conspiracy theory they believe in. But every other conspiracy theory even if it originated from the left, is now right-coded. I know some of the far left are still into the CIA stuff, you know, like the Chapo, Trap House, and the, the, that type of sphere. But pretty much everything else, and but most of the right agrees with that shit too. Like any conspiracy theory is now like right-coded, and we can, and our side is so addicted to it that it has to like say that this is the most important thing we need to talk about. And they'll talk about it constantly and stuff. And... That is, uh, you know, and you can argue how much this is getting into the mainstream, but we do have political figures who are now, you know, 
it is a big talking point that uh, Taylor Swift is like a deep state asset. So this is going into the mainstream and so are a lot of other things that are going into the mainstream. And you don't look normal or reasonable by getting in this. You really do have to present the facts in a way that's clear, direct, and doesn't make you look like a crank. But the right is obsessed with looking like cranks because we're mainly talking to our own audience and our own audience wants a more extreme version of what we're saying and they want the conspiracy theories and so it's better to build an audience to to look like a crank and to indulge all these conspiracy theories but it's bad for a political movement to do this because you're then losing a lot of normal people who are just like what the fuck are you talking about and so that is something to keep in mind you do it uh politically different no uh, the apolitical line is what a lot of some of the right do do this. They also adopt conspiracy theories. It's like everything's rigged by the deep state. So I'm just going to focus on DraftKings. And that's what they do. And that's what a lot of the American people are doing is they're tuning out of politics at a high level, especially compared to the late 2010s. Some ways this is good, as I argued last week, and I'm actually working on an article about this, is that, you know, if you don't have a... a big expansive media it really limits the ability for them to whip up trump derangement syndrome and that's good for us is that if there's less hysteria we're more able to win elections and to do what we want while trump's in office but at the same time some of these people just will just shrug their shoulders and maybe vote democrat even though because they're like why am i involved in politics i'm just too focused on the game and and uh, my new VR headset, and I now can make multiple bets <laughs> thanks to my VR headset. Um, so, uh, no, I'm not opposed definitely to the political, apolitical angle. And I don't know how that would work with our side since politics is our main focus. It's like, it's like your main focus is sports, and it's actually we're going to not talk about sports anymore. It's like, it's like, uh, <laughs> What is it's like ESPN? We're no longer going to talk about sports anymore. It's like what? That's like the whole point of people coming here. So I don't I don't support that. I also don't really agree with that. The mid 2010s was a reaction to SJWs. That was a really concern over SJWs was a much more niche thing than the concern over wokeness. Wokeness is definitely much more mainstream. And much more concerning to the average person than SJWs. The SJW stuff was like a college campus. There's a random speaker and someone yells at them. And it'd be like big to conservatives. And there was like what would become the IDW, the intellectual dark web was into it. But it was very much not a major concern. And also there was a, a feeling that these people weren't a threat. As if these were just like idiots that you could safely laugh at and then like just wait till the real world. They're going to learn their lesson. And I learned, I you know, I had several radio hosts and stuff when I was doing interviews for my book, No Camps for White Men, which was, you could say, dealing with the SJW menace. But it was also making a racial angle to this, which most of the right was not doing. And a lot of people were like, well, we just need to wait for them to get in the workplace and this will all straighten out. And as I argued, it's like these people are going to take over the workplace. And soon, and sure enough, they did. And now wokeness is everywhere. It's like in the workplace. It's in corporate advertising. It's when you go to the mall and you see crazy stuff there. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, 
impacts all the culture. It impacts politics. It's way bigger than SJWs. Republicans weren't really running on SJWs. They were just running on Obama and the economy and like, you know, straight um, table topics, I guess, as you would say. And that's what they talked about. So the SJWs thing wasn't quite like with wokeness or with how the left is trying to portray the Republican Party as a bunch of nut jobs. SJWs was not a much of a was not that important to political campaigns. So that's my answer to that. I guess we conclude our subject on Taylor Swift. There may be other. Oh, actually, there's more Super Bowl questions. We'll go to K Max. K Max has got two questions. Scott, uh, Super Bowl, sports Super Bowl question. With the 49ers facing the Chiefs, do you feel the NFL wants the Chiefs to win so Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey can dominate the post game coverage? Is this a conspiracy you might believe? You want the 49ers to win, though, due to having more white players? They remind me of the 2000s New England Patriots teams winning Super Bowls with a lot of white players. Uh, answer the question, yes, one. Uh, you know, I'm starting to believe a little bit more of the conspiracy. I don't really believe in many conspiracies, but NFL is a major corporation. You know, they have a lot of their profits on the line. They're going to make more profits and higher ratings by having Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift Super Bowl. And they would like nothing more than for Travis Kelsey to catch the game-winning touchdown. And then Taylor Swift appears out of nowhere from her tour in Tokyo or Japan. or She's somewhere overseas touring during the Super Bowl and comes out and embraces him on the field. And they would probably like nothing more than that to happen. So they definitely want the Chiefs to win. But I still think, you know, sometimes we can even overcome the rigging. I always want to say this is like this is the same with Trump. So I think it would be a good omen for Trump if the 49ers, despite the NFL rigging the game, win. And yeah, I do want the 49ers to win. They actually are not as white as you would imagine. The pro the thing is that all their stars are white. Is that you know Purdy, McCaffrey, Nick Boza is the defensive end, George Kittle their tight end. You know their big stars are all white. Um, but actually, the team, you know, I think Boza is the only white starter on the defense. Uh, their offensive line isn't even the, isn't that quite that white. They do have a white fullback as well. Um, they don't have any. I don't think they have any white receivers. I mean, Kittle is enough for receiver as is as tight end. But they do have. A, they're a very white coated team. And so, yeah, you definitely want the 49ers to win. Uh, it would be a good moment for Trump because they're trying to rig it for a Biden's team with the Chiefs, and then the 49ers win anyway. So I, you definitely want the 49ers to win. You definitely want to root for the 49ers in this coming week. Uh, but if they don't win, I'm going to definitely say it was rigged, no matter what. Uh, let's see. His next question from K Max. It's about Patrick Casey losing his YouTube channel after a Media Matters hit piece. Scott, do you feel YouTube has a pattern of banning accounts on the right during election seasons, especially after the media hit pieces on a person? Is this why as safe as you try to be on YouTube, are you big tech the right needs an alternative backup as the censorship is random without warning or strikes on your channel? Oh, yeah, they definitely try to do this after uh, election season. It's mostly media hit pieces. You always have to worry about that. Um, as I remember Fuentes got banned from Twitter after both the SPLC and ADL wrote hit pieces on him about how he needs to be kicked off. And so they definitely, and it, depending on how small you are and how much level support you're going to get, they're definitely going to uh, ban you. So if like Mania Matters did a hit piece on me for being on YouTube, 
uh, I'd probably get banned. Uh, my backup is Substack, and Substack is pretty pro-free speech. Uh, we definitely do need alternative backups. I mean, we but we do have those alternative backups. We have Substack, uh, which is mainstream, but it's you know stands by free speech despite a lot of the attacks on them. And if they started to limit free speech on there, they'd lose their biggest you know um, people. You know, it's like Glenn Greenwald and a lot of these other guys. They're all very, Matt Tybee, they want to have a pro-free speech platform. Uh, but we also have Rumble. Um, you have Odyssey. You have some other things. Uh, I guess you still have BitChute. Um, and you now even have Twitter. I mean, Twitter is also pro-free speech now, relatively. I mean, not it's not 100% perfect. It's the same with Substack. But compared to two years ago, it's way pre-Elon, it is way better. I would say it's one of the free speech platforms. So thankfully, we do have alternative backups. Um, and so if you are banned from YouTube, now it's not as much of a problem as it was in 2020 or 2019 or something like you you know what happened to Stefan Molyneux when he got banned from Twitter and YouTube at the same time you know he basically was effectively unperson and people stopped caring about him but now if you get banned from all this stuff you're still able to go strong and move forward so that's one thing that's a good thing that we do have effective alternatives now versus four or five years ago and and some of them are mainstream platforms like Substack and Twitter. <clears throat> so that's some good news with that. All right, moving along. Let's see. We'll go with Dollar Bill. Let me make sure what else we got. Yeah, we'll go with Dollar Bill. I enjoyed your IQ supplement on the current year view of the Civil War, and you touched on the movie Gettysburg, but didn't mention its sequel, God and Generals. I thought I did. What do you think of this movie? I watched it about a year ago and distinctly remember a scene where Stonewall Jackson and Confederate officer are having a meeting. A black servant comes in to serve refreshments, and the officer derisively calls him a Negro. Jackson takes offense and tells him not to use that word when referring to a member of the magical race. Uh, maybe he uses another word. Uh, besides Negro, the, this exchange comes came to, across to me as very out of place for the time and character, but it is keeping with the political correctness of when the movie was made in the early two thousands. You know, I have actually never seen the full length of God in General, so I've only seen bits and pieces. Uh, I know it's very corny and it's full of these scenes. Uh, the guy who made the movie was like a very or wrote in and involved in it was very like pro Confederate, but he was wanting to make them seem. Um, more in keeping with the times of the 2000s so there would definitely be the scene stonewall jackson would have definitely never taken offense at that um i uh, i um it, maybe even if maybe if it was the uh, other in word he may have taken offense he def they definitely would have never taken offense at the word negro uh because that was like the the nice way of saying it in those days so the the film uh, but what i know about the film it's trying to make confederates more likable to an audience of that time and it didn't really quite uh and it ultimately comes if you're very you know informed about history and if you have our views you're gonna find this you know corny and hokey and completely out of place so that would be it i have never watched the movie fully i've seen a lot of bits and pieces of it seen a lot of scenes of it um Basic, from what most people tell me, it's an inferior movie to Gettysburg. But I'd probably watch it. I may do an own IQ supplement on Gods and Generals uh, in of itself once I watch it. I think it's hard to find, actually. 
It's one of those movies that they don't try to have on streaming services, but I'm sure I can find it somehow. So that's an IQ supplement to look forward to. Okay, so we got Dollar Bill. And we'll go with John. John's got a question. And he said, I watched a, YouTube, a TikTok of an Olive Garden waitress making $120 in five hours, $24, or $24 an hour in tips. All the comments are enraged people complaining that restaurants are not paying her a salary or an hourly wage instead. I don't understand this. It seems like a pretty good amount of money to be making for the work that is being done. What are your thoughts on tipping and why are more people upset about it than ever? I'm very pro-tipping. I don't like people who don't tip. Sometimes you don't get the best of service, but you just give them a lower tip. I always tip. That not tipping is a magical behavior. And so I'm very opposed to it. So I remember, because I worked at a Domino's when I was in high school. One of the places I worked at, I worked at a grocery store for a much longer time, but I worked briefly at a, at a Domino's. And I remember like a lot of guys would get stiffed on their delivering pizzas. And that was always like very infuriating to me. And I learned at that time, and even for my family, they always felt it was like bad manners to never give a tip. If it's not good service, you just give them a lower tip. You know, and if it's really good service, you give them a higher tip, but you always got to give them tips. And so I'm pro with that. It's like, you know, these places already have trouble, like surviving restaurants and finding staff. And $24 an hour for a waitress is very good money. But they always expect like you should be making like 80 grand no matter what you're doing. But it's like a waitress. Most of those people are doing that job. They're in school, they're young, they're not, it's not their full-time job, or their husband is the main breadwinner, and they're just, you know, having supplemental income. No, 20, that, it's always these people, they all think that everyone deserves an $80,000 year income with, like, full healthcare and stuff, but that's just not possible. It's just not possible in this economy. I mean, you're seeing all these businesses fold up and go away and have mass layoffs, and it's like, that's without those standards that you have um so no i'm pro tipping um people are just upset about it because they feel that every restaurant has just an infinite money supply and every business has an infinite money supply and that everyone should be paid 80k uh, a year and maybe they should be even paid 80k a year to work but also the fact is is that the tipping system ensures the people that these waitresses and others are going to provide good service and they're going to try to provide the best service possible. Because if these people were just paid on a salary, you know, they would maybe not deliver the best of service. Maybe they wouldn't be as friendly and, you know, trying to, you know, ensure that you have the best time at the restaurant. And tipping ensures that these people really work to, you know, give you good customer service. And this is a huge problem in America right now is how awful customer service is. I never mean to like people in, in this thing. I never try to like, even if they're really slow and stuff, like I never go off on these people because like from my past experiences working and these type of jobs, like retail jobs, I'm just like, look, whatever. I'm just, or, you know, I'm take the, I take the stuff with me. Uh, but without tipping, you know, with the standard jobs of like, say like a Chipotle or stuff or, you know, uh, fast food, those type of places where you just go up to a cashier, you know, the service is horrible now. It's just like terrible. Like these people don't look, you know, there's no thank you or have a nice day or anything. It's like just terrible. And I can only imagine how t like Zoomer waitresses, how terrible they would be 
if they were not dependent on tips and they just had some exorbitant salary and they would just like here you go here's your through they throw it in your face and then they take forever to get take your order so no i'm very pro tipping we need to keep it uh just all these uh zoomers wanting to have terrible service and to make that the norm and i'm very much opposed to that that's very anti-white in my opinion uh so that is what we have that's the that's that's my answer on that question i think we are keeping New England refugee to the last. He's got a lot of questions today. So I think this is the last question. This is future American refugee. We haven't heard from him in a while. He's got, he's always got good questions. And so here's what he's got. And he's talking about his kids, the best education to go through uh, for. We live in a blue county, but we are in a suburban section of the county that is more Republican than Democrat. Plus, we are zoned for all A-rated public schools, elementary through high school. Despite our schools being A-rated, there have been numerous publicly reported instances of BLM and rainbow bullshit going on in some of the schools we are zoned for. Governor DeSantis had a mom speak at a press conference whose daughter was transitioned without her consent at the high school we are zoned for. I say all this to get to the point that we are considering schooling outside of public school, either private, charter, or homeschooling. I know that going this route or route should avoid the BLM rainbow-related issues. However, I'm concerned that there is no way to get around my child being taught today's liberal status quo understanding the civil war and the civil rights movement as a young man it has taken me a lot of time to reprogram my mind from the 1990s mlk centered version of history i was taught in primary school undergraduate etc i do not want my children to have or possibly never relearn history after the school days are complete like i did my question is what are the recommendations on the best course of action to ensure our children can be educated on our perspective worldview of history do you have any recommendations on specific books or textbooks that are tailored for children from our perspective again my most specific concerns are surrounding the civil war and social changes of the 1960s thanks scott well with it comes to homeschooling and stuff that's like a personal decision i i don't i can't really give um your opinion on that for me it depends on how bad the county is. Some counties, like I would say like in Northern Virginia, like Fairfax County, Loudoun County, I probably would send my kids to a public school, but I would just do uh, education on my own, like show them movies, uh, you know, talk to them about this stuff and what they're reading and try to form their and help them form their own opinions away from that. When it comes to specific to books or textbooks for the kids, I mean, you could try to find older textbooks from like the 50s and 60s. That would be a good way to educate them. They are hard to find, but I they are possible to find. And that would be my, it's really reading them old books and finding like standard works of American history that were written. Like I think Samuel Elliott Morrison, he had his own like standard textbooks of american history might be a little bit college level um so maybe a bit beyond the grasp of some high schoolers but it may have been high school level and he had these books come out and they're very like strong they're very politically incorrect and very and they were considered the standard at the time so you can find works like that it would mainly just be specific old books so i would try to find the older textbook of Samuel L. Morrison. Let me get the name of it. So there are actually two. There's one, The Growth of the American Republic, which was a textbook. And then there's The Oxford History of the American People, both uh, 
uh, older books. One, The Growth of American Republic is from 1930. The other one is from 1965. A lot of these ones teach, um, you know, people maybe up to date things, but it would give them a good grounding on American history and what to expect. And it would give them another perspective from what they're being taught in school. And I think it's just a lot of your personal responsibility just to talk to your kids about what they're learning and to, you know, ask them questions to broaden their perspective and to ensure that they're not, you know, totally infected with the woke mind virus. So it is tough out there for the kids. But I think one good thing is that a lot of kids, you know, this stuff goes in one ear out in the other and it doesn't make as large of an impact on them as possible. They're just focused on TikTok or whatever. A lot of kids in my high school couldn't tell you anything about American history, even if they were in American history AP. Um, so that's both good and bad. But I think if you want to get them really involved in history, there's alternatives out there. So that is his question. And now we've got New England refugee. And we have, let me make sure how many questions we've got from Mr. Refugee. We've got two. Okay, we'll go with the first one. Hey, hey Scott, the right has gotten weird over the past few years as you have been documenting. If Trump loses, there will be a huge push to normify the right. This will also mean they'll try to moderate positions. How do we get our party to be more normal while still keeping them keyed? That is a fantastic question. I think it's, they're not going to try to, they're, it's going to be, the one good thing is that whether Trump loses or wins, they're not going to be able to normify, like, normify the right in that way. Like, these positions are going to be with us for a long time. Even how the Republicans address immigration, the one white pill from the Senate border deal is how anti the deal is among conservative media and among House Republicans. Compare this to Gang of Eight Amnesty, which this bill is nowhere near as bad. There is a much, much more hostile reaction towards it than 11 years ago with the Gang of Eight Amnesty. So that is a big improvement. And they're going to have a tough time to moderate in these positions because the type of business-first republicanism as typified by Tom Tillis, Mitch McConnell, Lankford, that is going out of style. No one's really into that. That's not what they want for their leaders. It's even looking at Nikki Haley that's promoting that idea. She's only doing well in these primaries because Democrats are coming and voting for her. And that's just not... Um, so it's only dependent on Democrats uh, elevating this. They're not going to be able to do this in 2024 i was or after 2024 i was very much worried that they were going to try to do this after 2020 and that was one reason that i was opposed to them winning the senate runoffs because i thought that they would you know just try to have a de-trumpify the party and move it back to business as usual pre-trump and the fact that they did not win those Senate runoffs and the fact that trump stayed around ensured that they couldn't do that and i think that was the last opportunity for them to do this the party's been, the House Republican caucus is far more right-wing than it was 10 years ago. There's more senators who are very Trump, Trumpian in their positions who would have been moderate business first guys a few years ago, like Bill Haggerty and a few others, Tommy Tuberville as well. And so it, it, I think it's going to be impossible for that to happen. The real question is to make sure the party is not too crazy rather than it goes flips over into do its pre-Trump self. 
Um, I think uh, after four years of having Trump still as a leader and still molding the party in his and his image has been very beneficial for the party uh, when it comes to policy uh, perspective. So that's some good news I have for Mr. Refugee. Now for his final question. What's your opinion on Michael Malice? Like many, I was a cringe libertarian before, and Michael Malice introduced me to Amron in his book, book New Right. I found the whole book fascinating. It really sent me down the rabbit hole to become to being a prominent Greerhead. Well, I'm glad you got introduced to Michael Malice through that. I'm not the biggest fan of Michael Malice. Uh, even his book, I remember the New Right. I think it was supposed to be a little bit more positive about some of the alt-right aspects, and he interviewed Jared Taylor. And it wasn't that flattering about Jared Taylor in the book. You may disagree with that. I remember it because I've talked to Mr. Taylor about this and he wasn't a fan of how he was described in the book. And generally he's not like that sensitive to this stuff. He's understanding of it, but he felt that it wasn't that fair. Uh, Malice, um, most of his political opinions are very opposed to. You know, it's still like he's like into this cringe anarchist stuff. Like he likes Emma Goldman and other ridiculous people like that. Um, he's extremely anti-cop in a very stupid way. Like one time he celebrated cop murders, like some cops getting shot by like some non-white in New York City. And he's like, this is what cops ha happen to cop, like little piggies. And I was like, who, the, who are you going to call for help when a crime happens? Like you're not that big of a guy, Mr. Malice. Uh, you'd probably call law enforcement. So I'm very much anti some of the um, his police stuff. He was also definitely into one of these people who was trying to dump Trump um, overall. But unlike others, he realized his error and was back on being pro-Trump. But he was very anti-Trump in 2022 and 2023. And he's like blaming him for the you know COVID and, and the lockdowns and is very anti-Trump. But he realized like, uh, there was no alternative to Trump, and now he's been back on, you know, sounding like he's pro-Trump. A uh, lot of a lot of content creators have to be smart like that, but people don't remember this stuff. He's also really stupid into the national divorce stuff and Texas, and like, so in his idea of Texas, we would have, you know, no police, um, be the exact same state that you have there, but somehow would be based and. He's not even from Texas. He was born in Ukraine, so he's um, not really. Uh, he's not a heritage American, to say the least. He's, uh, I think, he's Ukrainian Jew. Um, from that, so no, I'm not the biggest fan of Malice, as you can tell from his laws, political opinions. I guess there could be worse ways. I, I would say there's probably worse people to have as your gateway. Um, it's probably his podcast. Probably have a more intelligent discussion than Timcast and some others but on politics you know the anarchist stuff i think is stupid i think the national divorce stuff is stupid and the anti-police stuff is very stupid and his book new right is probably one of his better works and if it was like your gate i guess if it's like a good gateway drug i can't hate on it too hate on him too much um but no i'm not the biggest fan of malice as you can tell but that's it for today's podcast. So hopefully you guys enjoyed. We had a riveting discussion on many different topics. So we're going to have some more great content later this week, both in an IQ supplement and an article. So be on the lookout for that. And you got and those things will be on highly-respected.com. So tune in for that. So until next time, stay respected. <laughs>